Hello, Great Women Artists listeners. It's Katie here. And before we get into today's episode with the legendary Sheila Hicks, I want to let you know I have written a book, which is out this September. The Story of Art Without Men aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. It is available to pre-order now from Amazon, Waterstones and more. And I've linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection, handcast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by the brilliant Rush Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. It is one of my favourite times of year when Alighieri launches their autumn-winter 2022 collection. The collection is called Untitled and it explores the power of body language to express emotion in a world where words are often not enough. The use of body language dates back to prehistoric times, much like jewellery. Before the existence of language, we drew on objects and gestures to tell our stories. These universal tools know no barriers, regions or borders. The collection will be released in six drops, with only ten of each piece available for now. The first drop, the Vessel series, explores bulbous silver amphorae and abundant curved hoops, a collection of objects to imbue with your secrets and carry with you on all of your adventures. To welcome in the spring, Alighieri will be including a mini dried bouquet with every order until Friday, perfect for Mother's Day gifting. You can visit the full collection at www.alighieri.com and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the world's most renowned artists, Sheila Hicks. Working across textile, fiber, color, and form, Sheila Hicks's six decade and counting career has seen her work across multiple mediums, processes, and disciplines. From her cascades of color that pour out of museum ceilings to her smaller woven drawings she likes to call monemes, Hicks pushes all boundaries of fibre in all different environments. Born in 1934, Hicks was educated at Yale in the 50s, where she was taught by Joseph Albers and George Kubler, whose teaching inspired her to venture to Chile to witness the weaving culture in the Andes. Moving to Mexico, then Paris, Hicks has designed film sets to a thousand thread-based medallion sculpture for the Ford Foundation in New York. Recent international exhibitions include the 2020 exhibition at the MAC Vienna, the 2017 Venice Biennale, the Whitney Biennale in 2014, plus a major solo exhibition at the Pompidou in Paris. 
But one of the reasons why we are very excitingly speaking with Sheila today is because this spring she will unveil a major exhibition at the Hepworth Wakefield, a show featuring over 70 of her vibrant works which collapse all boundaries between art, architecture and design, breaking down all tensions which in turn create environments where we can be at one with the work. Sheila Hicks, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I was okay until I heard all that. I'm kind of tired already thinking about what you just said. You know, I don't look back. I only look forward. Fantastic. So thank you so much for speaking with me. It's such an honor to have you on. Every time I see one of your fiber works, I am transfixed, whether they be your transformations of fiber into sculpture or painting or an enveloping installation that is almost architectural in structure, oozing with bright colors. I remember as a teenager visiting your incredible installation at the Haywood Gallery and just sitting and breathing and lying within color. So I want to start off by asking you, how do you want people to feel in front of your work? You actually went to the exhibition at the Hayward and you were sitting in the Dan Graham pavilion up on the top, watching the trains and boats and things going by from the top there. Absolutely. And did you sit with your computer and sort of work and do things? Uh, I remember just lying there and just being there. Well, some of them came back every day. They were joking. They said, some people said, meet you. <laughs> and then they would have their daily rendezvous there. And just sort of unwind, unwind and uh, vitamize their uh, next day, you know, to see where it's going to go next. That was a nice occasion to work in that place. You took an escalator or some kind of stairway or something up there, and you really were not expecting to find that. Maybe we'll be able to do the same thing at the Hepworth, not the same thing, but something as welcoming, because I've never been to that museum, but I've seen photographs and it looks wonderful. And we're going to do something in the garden there, too. Something that can stay and remain outdoors for the four or five months that the show is on. We'll erect something of a kind of menhir or kind of tower or lighthouse of color within the garden itself. And then go in and move through the spaces that have skylights and different shapes, the architecture, which is what I'm excited about because it's not just a cube. It's not just a, a museum room. It's all kinds of different ceiling heights and um, sequences, a sequential experience. So that's what I'm thinking. And what is it about reacting to the space that you are attracted to? When you go into a space, how do you want to transform it? I'm sensitive to light sources. And that way it's nice to visit different times of the day. And uh, this museum seems to have natural light sources that are surprising. And I'll follow where the light comes in from different angles, and I'll build things within the space so that the natural light will tell me where to go and what to do. Now you come at night, then we're going to have to work with the lighting engineers and spotlight things in a way that would be a surprising angle of light source as well. That's why theater is marvelous, because they work so much with the lighting and with the um, sequencing. What happens once, twice, three times differently. The um, idea of building up with fiber-based materials means that the suppleness, the built-in quality of the material allows also for transformation. And if you turn on a fan, 
you can't open windows because I think the museum doesn't allow that. But if you turn on a fan or move the air in some way, the exhibition itself will tremble and move because of its basic material being fiber and, and uh, textile. So imagine a trembling show. And uh, that's kind of um, frightening in a way for children. If they walk into a museum and start looking at things and see things moving. But in a way, it, it does grab their imagination because it means if that moves and they are moving too, they can interact. They can even go up and when they're not watching, maybe touch or like you did, sit down in the middle of it. Let's see how tough the guards are. <laughs> and do you want to encourage that tactility and that feeling of touch? Because I think when with your work, it's so sensorial. It's visual for the eyes, but also emotional for the senses. Well, it's inevitable. I don't, uh, I don't have much to do with it except staging it. Its own intrinsic characteristics cause it to be very seductive and manual pleasure in the sense of reading things with your fingers as well as your eyes. Something you can't do with painting, sometimes with sculpture, if you're allowed. You'll notice some public sculpture is shiny in certain places on the sculpture because of the public being drawn to it and touching it. I don't think it'll leave traces of being handled, but it can be impacted by weight or if some seven children decide they're going to have a powwow in the middle of it, they'll leave an imprint. But that imprint can tremble and move by just blowing onto the fiber. It's not static. It's not a dead sculpture or inanimate painting on the wall. It's something else. Although I love sculpture and painting, this is just a third dimension. Yeah. I love the fact that when we come to your work, we almost become the sort of fourth dimension in a way. And I love this idea that, you know, it is a bit like a theater because it's never going to be the same again. It's like a live performance in that space. Also, when people walk into the space, don't forget they're all usually wearing textiles themselves. We could tell them, take off all their clothes. Not sure what the guards would think about that. <laughs> well, they, they could play the game too. Yes. But then... All the people who are clothed in different ways will move through the environment and you'll be able to watch them as actors in the play. Take off your shoes and feel things with your bottom of your feet. It's a very sensitive place is the bottom of your feet. The acupuncturists know this and they work a lot on your foot bottom. And I make things and use them in the house and in... Um, different places, and I put them under the space where I have the computer so that when I have uh, just stockings on my feet and not shoes, I can stimulate my brain by moving my toes over these roughed-up fiber surfaces. And I make things out of corn husks and out of bamboo. So when you think of fiber, it's not just what you think of as wool or silk or cotton. There's a whole range of fibrous materials the kind that people who make baskets use too. And what is it about using all these different materials and combining them together that you are attracted to? What do you think are the potentials of that? I've noticed you tend to trust people who know how to make what they eat and make what they wear. If you travel, 
and you go to different cultures in different parts of the world and you observe the cultures and how they prepare their food and how they actually make their own clothing, they endear themselves to you immediately because it is not an intellectual competition. It's not a exchange of who knows more or who knows better with a lot of verbiage. It's just simple, essential, sensual life experiences, eating and protecting yourself and presenting yourself, packaging yourself of how you want to be viewed and interpreted by others of what kind of things you put on your body and walk around in expecting to be understood in those terms. Do you notice how you change your um, way of packaging yourself as you go through different ages? Yeah. Look at the photographs of yourself 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you'll see how you're modifying your uh, presentation with your hair and with your garments. Sometimes you're following fashion. Sometimes you're going against fashion in order to make sure you're noticed. Same in exhibitions. You don't do the same exhibition 10 years later or 20 years later or 30 years later because you're getting feedback from your public and you're developing a dialogue and they're challenging you because their questions, at least the questions people address to me, it causes me to think, causes me to walk around and see the other side of the story from another perspective and then to try and figure out how to connect with different kinds of interpretations. And when was it that you started using, because obviously you, you work across so many different scales and processes and disciplines. Why is that? And when did you start with the architectural kind of structures that are so enveloping? When I went to school, the um, architecture department was in the same building, same two buildings connected with a bridge, with the workshop that was doing printmaking lithography, uh, etching, engraving, another studio where people were doing the discipline of lettering, calligraphy and lettering, another where people were with blowtorches. Wow! Changing the shapes of metals and connecting them and soldering. It was the Yale Art School, and you could wander from one department to the other. So naturally, wander in and audit classes about history art history, architecture history. And then you have visiting critics and architects coming and lecturing. And you wander and sit quietly in a dark room and they open your eyes and cause you to think, discover. And I was very lucky at the Yale Art School because Louis Kahn, the architect, was coming, conducting critics and classes in his own building that he had just finished building, the Yale Art Gallery. Buckminster Fuller was coming and uh, building tetrahedral structures on the roof of the school. Incredible. Vincent Scully was giving lectures about architecture history, and as he would describe ancient Greek architecture or other, he would walk across the stage back and forth and jump and move and wave his arms and bring you into the spaces that he was projecting in the photographs on the screen. You asked me how I got interested in architecture, how can you not be interested in architecture when you have these fabulous teachers? 
who are so enthralled, involved, and imbued with a certain connaissance, a certain culture, and able to project it and communicate it. And you're swept into their enthusiasm. You mentioned some of these teachers yourself. They were quite wonderful. But I mean, what's amazing is your work at the Whitney, where you had it sort of cascading, almost like a waterfall. I mean, I've never seen textile or fibre be transformed in that way. It felt moving, like it was gushing out of the ceiling. And then I remember seeing your work in Venice at the Arsenale and just being completely enveloped by the space and the use of fibre kind of connected with architecture. I mean, what experience did you want to create there? And I should add, for those who didn't see this work, Sheila transformed this almost ancient industrial building in Venice to one that just sang with colour by installing heaps and heaps of multicoloured fibre on the floor and up the wall and then filled in its natural cracks with coloured fibre like kaleidoscopic snakes. I don't have to say anything. You've said it. <laughs> because I... <laughs> I'm your perfect viewer. Well, the curator comes and says... Um... We'd like to invite you to uh, participate in our exhibition or our presentation. And uh, I say, okay, show me where you want me to do it. Do it meaning wide open. We don't know what we're going to do, but let's show me where is the space that you think this should happen. So then you walk into the space and you yourself psychologically and visually camp yourself in that space and see what it tells you, what it wants what it's willing to do in a way to cooperate. Can we take a bushel full of twisted cords and make them actually penetrate and go through the ceiling? Is it plaster? Is it concrete? Is it wood? Or is it glass? Or So then we have the engineers and the building and the committee deliberating with you what you're allowed to do without being destructive. What you can do to sort of surprise yourself without demolishing any of the existing uh, givens. And so that's what happened, of course, in Sydney when I saw the columns in front of the museum and the light sources and that the public would walk in through these steps and through these columns. It seemed obvious that we could just make one of the columns into a kind of um, lighthouse or attractive, seductive, want to touch, want to feel, want to approach, and want to come and inspect. So taking a column and wrapping it. Christo did marvelous things, you know, Christo and his wife, uh, Jean-Claude. They did wonderful things. They'd go around and wrap buildings or bridges or move out into water, spaces of water and cause floating uh, colors on a liquid surface. I really liked their brave open receptivity to atmosphere, space, the elements. Yeah. Now, I see more and more people also experimenting with things like earthworks and sand and deserts and mountains and <laughs> not just buildings, huh? not just architecture. In other words, art has crept out into full-blown existence in our lives. And we dare call it art. I don't know if it is art, but um, it's certainly enhancing our daily experiences to come across some kind of daring thrust of color, texture, fiber, an emotional explosion of some kind, or a very intimate discovery. Maybe something like a little bird's nest that fell from a tree. 
or maybe a little mouse has left behind all the twigs that it gathered from the tree and made a nest for the mini mice. <laughs> As you walk across in the park, you look under the bushes and you look up at the sky and you see leaves changing colors. So you can imagine, um, we're not talking about art. No, we're talking about just living visual experiences. The traces of our lives. When I look at your work as well, it's just pure colour as well. And it accentuates, you know, for example, in the Arsenale, they had those bits of red that snaked in and out of the the cracks of the building. And it was just this pure colour. I mean, what does colour mean to you? Have you ever thought about the idea of living without colour? I think it was Alma Thomas who said, a world without colour is dead. It does non-existent. Yeah. Since it's part of our daily givens. And its playfulness allows us to change with it. You know, people dress in black a lot. But as soon as they walk into a room, they're faced with color. Well, all we talk about these days is color. Color in our environment, color in our culture, people of all colors extending themselves across barriers, enhancing our coexistence. Color is everything. Without color, there's nothing. And what about color and threads as a form of communication? Because obviously, especially when you were younger, you went out into the Andes and Chile and so many cultures have sort of tying knots as a form of communication. What is it about fiber and threads that act as a form of communication for you? Well, I'm looking at your sweater today. (laughs) I wore it especially for you. It's a very bright, stripy sweater. I thought you would like it. (laughs) You know where it was made? You know that most of the socks that we wear all over the world are made in China? Sometimes I ask uh, people when we're together. Luis Sinatu, WhatsApp audio. This is my granddaughter calling. Hold on just a minute. She might have thumbs. Hi, Louise. What color are you wearing today? Red socks, a blue sweater. What else? And gray pants. Gray pants? Are you wearing a hat? Yes, yellow hat. And a yellow hat. My God, you got every color practically in the rainbow. I'm talking to a, I'm talking to a woman here in a podcast who's wearing a sweater that has seven different colors and stripes in the sweater. What are you having for lunch? Ramen noodles with vegetables and chicken. What color? Uh, I guess red, spicy. Yeah. Okay. Can I call you back in a little while? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Ciao. Amazing. I love the idea of looking at the colors we surround ourselves with, whether that be food and how spicy food can emanate certain colors or what we choose to put on ourselves as a mode of expression. And so what is it about color that is a form of communication, do you think? I think some people act like they're colorblind. You can see sometimes when you sit in a place and you see how people are dressed and you say, oh, my God, I'm sure that this one's colorblind because why would they ever put those things together? (laughs) But you find out that they're not colorblind. It's a statement that they want to go against what's considered good taste. And who's dictating good taste these days? You're talking about color. Are they the fashion designers or are they the counter fashion designers? And do you look to nature as well? Nature's in your life every day. 
I'll show you mine. Can you see this? Wow. Sheila's showing me a green plant. It's a cactus. Isn't it nice? Beautiful. Wow, look at that pink plant. It's a poinsettia. And then here's the basket collection. Where did you get all these baskets from? All over the world. When I travel and work someplace, I look at what people are making. And most cultures that have an agricultural base also have baskets. Tell us about what you're working on at the moment. So they're secrets. This is what gives me ideas if I sit and wrap like this. Can you see this? Yes. What's the scale of these? Can they be 10 inches or can they be 10 feet? Or can they be 200 feet? Can they be a route of a forest walk that you go through a forest and walk and look and see up and down and all around the paths? And can you drop all these little colored secrets along the path? and then uh, invite someone else to walk through the forest and to gather them, pick them up, and bring them, put them on the lunch table, and decide what's going to be the banquet. You can leave these things like little secrets along the way as you're walking. Wow. I mean, I'm also fascinated, you know, you live above the theatre and opera designer, you create these kind of theatrical-like sets. I'm wondering, how does music come into your work? Everyone who lives in this building has a son or a grandson or a granddaughter or who play the piano. So, <laughs> so we have music every day because they're all practicing. So you're listen- I'm listening to music that is live music all the time from people practicing. And then we have it combined with the people who are constructing, which Boulez or someone else might say that this is contemporary music, you know, the kind of sounds that are coming out of the construction work. A lot of things I do, people say, oh, it reminds me of music. And you just showed me those amazing kind of comet-like secrets as sculptures. I mean, tell me about them because I love them. They almost feel like a sort of constellation of stars or something. And I love how you always install them at different heights. So throughout my whole life, whenever I've gone to see your work, you know, whether I've been a kid or an adult or a teenager, I've always experienced it at different levels. You mean things like this? I'm looking at Sheila holding these almost comet-like, they look like stones, but they're not. They're almost kind of like pumpkins or something. They're so organic. They're in Sheila's hands. They're like bundled with thread. We've got orange, we've got white, we've got purple, yellow, blue. She's holding a few. And Sheila, in a way, they almost look like extensions of your hands. Well, and uh, if we show them to someone else, they'll tell us something else. That's what it's about, how people look and what they're metaphors and affinities are you have to start from something and then move you know into space and see what they see can it become a building or can it become a it it can become a world the whole world could be in there and i love your minims which are these much smaller works and i've loved how you have described them as like writing a letter could you talk a bit about working with the grid do you have that book uh, called weaving as metaphor it's a book that we worked on, made in 2005, I think. And it's about these very small works, which I'm calling minim. Minim meaning minimal and small. It's hard to t- talk about them because I think it's better to look at them, to imagine making them yourself you know, with threads, with 
little twigs and threads and buttons and leaves and uh, various petrified wood and seashells and uh, things that I pick up on the ground as I'm walking around. Traces of things that you can hold in your hand and you can make on small scale. I work on different scales. It becomes an extension of you. It's in, in your own manual uh, range. Well, you see things and you say that what scales would be interesting. Ah, to scale that up might be really nice. You could almost like walk through it. Imagine yourself the size of an ant. And as an ant, you'd crawl through this different surfaces here. And each time you went around the corner, you'd see something wonderful happening. That's the model, you see, for hyperbolic paraboloids <laughs> in space. Do you imagine yourself being different things when you create them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you imagine yourself being? A small little tiny person or a, or a gigantic monster who's grappling with the different flapping materials in the wind. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you like John Berger? The writer? Yes. There was this amazing article that I read recently that made me think so much. He said that he, when he was alive, he used to keep a painting of his granddaughter just, you know, on the table. So he'd be having lunch with someone and he'd just have the painting up because he would always want to see himself from her point of view. And I thought that was amazing because it's, it's about, I guess, how you want people to see you. Well, you know, we, you look through your eyes, but then you try and look through other people's eyes too to see what they're seeing. That's why it's so much fun to sit quietly in a corner and watch people go through an exhibition of my work and I see which way they move and how they react. With and uh, the children are the great, great revelation of how they migrate and move and look or ignore or are attracted or repelled by certain things in a very natural way. And what have you seen in your time? Come and we'll walk into the exhibition in Wakefield and we'll sit quietly, inconspicuously in a corner and we'll watch people as they come in of all sizes and all ages. And we'll look through their eyes. Amazing. I couldn't think of anything I'd like to do more. Sheila Hicks, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if there was a female artist from the past or working now who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? I don't see any interest in speaking with them. I think the interest is seeing what they make. I don't think I have to justify what I'm making. I think I just have to do it. And people like it or not, walk away from it or walk toward it. And I like art a lot, and I look at it a lot, and I would never think I have to ask someone to justify what they made. I just have to get acquainted with it and think about it and see on what level it enters my consciousness. I see a lot of art I don't like, and yet I like the artists, you know, the people. What artist do you ask me I would like to talk to? I would like to sit in the corner in Brancusi's studio 
and quietly watch him work. I'd like to sit um, on the floor nearby where Noguchi's putting something together. I liked hanging out with Calder because he always had wisecracks, unsolicited wisecracks about things that caused me to look at what he was doing differently. I like watching Japanese artists doing calligraphy and their hesitation and the way they hold the brush differently and move it through space and make shapes. I like very much watching people write in Arabic and then go back and put in accents as they finish. That, that fascinates me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sheila Hicks, for coming on the podcast today. See you soon. Thanks again to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri Jewelry. Follow their journey on at Alighieri underscore jewelry to hear all about their latest collection and discover their magical talismans at www.alighieri.com. Don't forget to use the code TGWA at checkout for a 10% discount. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with the brilliant Sheila Hicks. What a fascinating insight into her work and I cannot wait to see her exhibition at the Hepworth Wakefield. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Smanelic and the research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes, feel free to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 